In this morning's psalm, David's mind is clarified by his suffering. His mind is more focused than it might otherwise would have been. We know that suffering can have that effect. It can press through all of the distractions of life and arrest our attention to where our suffering and heavier realities are weighing upon us because it can feel unrelenting. And this year and the years prior have no doubt been occasions in all of our lives where we could share stories of our own personal afflictions and difficulties and journeys. Times in which we have felt pressed by such circumstances that it has brought clarifying moments of insight to what matters, to the frailty of life. We have other things in mind from time to time, things that can distract us, things that are important but not most important, that can easily become the focus, and then something happens. Suddenly, we are aware that death is something that is down the path for us as well. We're not invincible. Death is inevitable because we're humans in a fallen world. This psalmist has had his mind clarified by his personal suffering. It has made him more aware of the distresses around him, more keenly aware of the sins within him, and he has seen more clearly the hope that is in God alone. Oh, that our circumstances outwardly and the personal suffering within would give us that kind of clarity. Because David is in a fallen world where maybe not everyone responds to suffering in the way he's talking about. David is going to turn to the Lord. That's why this psalm exists. But some might go through difficulties outwardly and inwardly and think, I want nothing to do with God. I will not worship Him. I will not pray to Him. I will turn from Him. David's example is a different one. David's example is one where he, as the psalmist, is going through what he is and is giving this psalm to the choir master, to Jaduthan here by name. We'll consider that name in a moment. Written for others that they would look at his words and these words become their own. That's one of the powerful impacts of the psalms in our hearts. That these are not words we're reading of some distant report of someone's experience and go, isn't that interesting? But we can read the Psalms and say, I can resonate with that. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, this Psalm is written. Jeduthun is named in the Old Testament in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. He is from the tribe of Levi and is a sanctuary court singer. He's named in 1st Chronicles 16 and 1st Chronicles 25, appointed by David himself as a singer and a musician. Meaning that when these psalms are enjoyed and sung by the Israelites, these are psalms that are also led by appointed sanctuary musicians and singers, and among whom was a man named Jaduthan. This is a psalm of David to him and to them. In verses 1 to 3, David's difficulty of staying silent is clear. David's difficulty of staying silent. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I'll guard my mouth with a muzzle, 
so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. David is reflecting on the difficulty of remaining silent when he's going through something. When he says, I will guard my ways that I may not sin, he recognizes that when we are undergoing suffering, we're not always thinking well about everything. Though certain things that had been excluded from our purview might be on the, in the forefront in the moment. But we can have passing thoughts and passing words that we know may not really be true. And that we might think something like, if I'm going through this, how could God possibly love me? Or if I'm going through this, I wonder if why I'm suffering in this way is because I did something that brought this about. And we can have all sorts of thoughts and words out loud that he says here might be said in front of others and not be helpful. He says, I want to guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. David's aware of his sinfulness and that going through suffering might not make him less sinful. It might put him on edge. It might heighten. It might heighten and increase the propensity David may have to say something that is wrong in the presence of others. And he doesn't want to poorly represent God with his words. So he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I'm going to guard my mouth with a muzzle. I don't take that literally. I don't think that when this was a personal period of suffering and someone walked by David, they'd say, what's that on his face? Is that a muzzle? I don't think this is literal here. I think he's speaking metaphorically that like a, a muzzle on the mouth to hold it tight or to keep what's in it there, I will guard my mouth like that. In other words, I'm going to pay attention to my thoughts and words because what I'm going through, this isn't the time to be reckless with my words. This is the kind of circumstances that might put me at greater vulnerability with my words. And I don't want to sin more in my suffering. I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I'll guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. The wicked delight in David's trials. He is a king over Israel. He has said in many psalms that we've seen in 2023 that the wicked are at the edge of their seats looking for his demise. They can't wait to see him fall. They want to beat him down while he's weak. They want to rejoice over his undoing. And what they are looking to do is celebrate his defeat and by, by implication... The powerlessness of David's God. They want to celebrate all of this. Look where you are, David. And what can your God do of this? So David knows, in my personal suffering, my testimony still matters. In my personal suffering, as I'm seeking to persevere by faith, looking to God, refuge in God, my personal suffering doesn't give me a pass my personal suffering is an opportunity for me to minister words of truth in my persevering faith. And David says, so here the wicked are in my presence. Am I going to care less about what I say? No. I'm going to be mindful of what I say because these wicked want to take advantage of any opportunity and any, any reckless word. He says in verse 2, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. 
You know what I think David's describing? Is the inward angst that he's feeling that he wants to speak. But he wants to be so careful in the presence of the wicked, he's feeling this pressure build. It's like when you put water in a pot, and you put it on the stove, and you turn the heat on high, and you put a lid on it. Eventually, that built-up pressure is going to make you aware of what happens. And you're going to sense the pressure building up within. And maybe even the slow rattling of that lid on top is just threatening to burst out outward. He says, here I was. I was mute. I was quiet. So I didn't actually have a muzzle. It was like one, though. I just kept my tongue quiet. And I was holding my peace, but it was getting more and more difficult. It was getting more and more difficult. My distress grew worse. My heart, in verse 3, began to burn within me. It became hot. And as I mused, this is David's way of saying, as I'm thinking about what's going on, as I'm reflecting on my circumstances and my personal suffering, this heart of mine that began to burn was like a fire within me. And then I spoke with my tongue, O Lord, in verse 4. Verses 1 to 3 are about the difficulty of David staying silent, his desire to be quiet before the wicked, and, and then finally he must speak. But notice, notice the audience. In verses 1 to 3, he remains silent before the wicked. And when he must speak, David speaks to God. He speaks to God in verse 4. Oh, Lord. So he's calling out to Yahweh. Verses 4 through 6 are an interesting part of his prayer. It's not the main thing he's going to pray for. Verses 7 to 13 are the resolve and the request of the psalmist for deliverance. But what David wants... In the meantime, right before he gets to those main requests in verses 7 to 13, he has a desire in verses 4 to 6. After this difficulty of remaining silent, he has a desire to understand something. The understanding of the frailty of life. O oh Lord, make me know my end. He's talking about his earthly end. This is not a comment on life after death. This is a comment on the fact that you and I are born and we will die. David says, make me to know my end. What is the measure of my days? You go and you look on a tombstone and you look at the birth date and the death date. That's the measure of their days in an earthly sense. The measure of my days. David says, I know I've got days that are numbered. David knows he himself did not sovereignly appoint those days. He says, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. That last line in verse 4, I think, is what the opening lines of verse 4 are about. Make me to know my end is David's way of saying, help me, God, to live in such a way that I am aware that I am not invincible. I'm not going to live as if my will is going to be done in heaven and earth. I'm not going to live as if my earthly kingdom is unshakable. I'm going to live with an awareness that I will die. Help me to do this, God. Make me to know my end. I don't think David is expecting that in some unusual, extraordinary, visionary moment, God is going to reveal to David the day he's going to die and how. I don't think that's what this means. Some interpreters over the years have wondered if that's what verse 4 means. Can we pray that God would help us realize when we're going to die? Verse 4 is David's way of talking about the end of his earthly life, his fleeting nature of life. And he says, let me get a sense of, let me know and understand how fleeting I am. 
And nothing helps us see how not in control of the world we are than our own personal suffering. Because we wouldn't have planned it. We wouldn't have said, well, what would I like to have happen this year? These various afflictions and trials, I have the month open here. How about these difficulties and challenges? Our calendars would be blank. If, if, we, if we could put on the, the docket of things to do and what to experience, we're not looking for more affliction. David says, given what I'm going through, help me know. Help me to realize and to understand the fleeting nature of my life. This is why the writer of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 7 that it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. For in the house of mourning, the living will lay it to heart. There is something that can be discerned about how to live more wisely when we remember our death that is coming. This psalm sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes. Talking here about the measure of days and how fleeting he is. The, the idea of being speechless before the God in heaven, let my words be few, Ecclesiastes 5 says. Talking later about the breath of man and how his days are but a shadow. These, these kinds of things you expect to find in Ecclesiastes and in the book of Job. And here they are in Psalm 39. Because all the biblical authors are saying with one voice, whether it's Psalms or Ecclesiastes or Job, that our inevitable death is down the road. How fleeting I am. That's what David says I want to know. Behold, in verse 5, you have made my days a few hand breaths. Now I don't know if you measure things by hand breaths, but that's basically holding up your hands together and however many inches this is, that's a hand breath. And he says in verse 5, All My days, the measure of my birth to death, you know what those are? They're but a few handbreadths. My lifetime is as nothing before you. What's the comparison in verse 5? Why does David feel like his life is so fleeting? Because David is praying for God to help him understand his life in light of all things. The perspective of eternity. So my lifetime... Before you, David says, well, what is that? You're eternal. You're the eternal, everlasting God. You never came to be. You have always been. You will never not be. You shall always be. And this God who always was and is and shall be, my measure of days is as nothing before God. His vastness, his sovereignty, his eternality. David here is thinking doctrinally. He's thinking, what is God like? What do I know about God because of the Word of God that I know? His delight in the Word of God has shown him over the years that God is the everlasting God. So before you, in comparison with that, my, you know, my, my, my life is just like a few hand breaths here today and gone tomorrow. And I think this is true whether you're 10 or whether you're 110. That in comparison to eternity, your life is but a few handbreadths. Now, when you're young, life seems to take forever. It seems to take so long. Even waiting from one year to the next for Christmas, you think it takes so long to get here and then it's gone so quickly. And young people who are looking forward to driving or can't wait to graduate high school or trying to get through whatever is next in their, they're looking to this and things can seem to take so long. But it doesn't seem to take so long the older you get. 
when you are of a certain age, and I don't know what that age is. I feel like I'm there. <laughs> when you get to a certain age, at some point, though pinpointing that is murky, where things seem to go a lot faster, you think, oh my goodness, this is here again already. I mean, can you believe that you can count the number of weeks in 2023 on one, on, not one hand, but on, on two hands now, and one hand in short order? There's so few weeks that remain of a year, and, and it doesn't seem like this year began too many months ago. Now, for those younger in this room, you might feel like this year has been the longest year of your life, and all years have felt that way. You know, David here is trying to give perspective. So it's not about age. That's not what he's comparing to, someone younger or someone older. He's looking at his lifetime before the living God. You, God, have made my days a few handbreadths. My lifetime is as nothing before you. David's not saying his life doesn't matter. He's not saying because my life is short in the grand comparison of things that it's insignificant. No, our life matters because we've been created as image bearers, tasked with a commission to bring the gospel to the nations and to make much of Christ for the glory of God. Our life matters. But in comparison to God, we are but nothing. How could we be? The eternal God has no equal. There's no rival to God of equality. My lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And I don't think that has to mean all mankind as individuals. But add them all up. Add up every person contemporaneous with us in this life. The billions of people that exist on this globe. Add them all up. And add together the generations that have preceded us. Going all the way back to Adam. Add every individual who has ever lived. And the combined total of all of their years is but a breath. Compared to the might and eternality of God. All mankind stands as one, as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. In C.S. Lewis's fiction series, The Chronicles of Narnia, the last chapter is about those main characters of Narnia in the book The Last Battle. In the last chapter, bidding goodbye to what he calls the Shadowlands. Lewis would describe this life as the shadowy life. And we think, well, things seem more real. Friends, what is to come is more real than this life. These realities in which we live and move and have our earthly being are but shadowy realities compared to what is to come. These are the shadowlands. Lewis is right. We have those light and momentary sufferings that are achieving a weight of glory beyond comparison. These are the shadow lands. David says in Psalm 23 that God is with him in the valley of the shadow of death. He will fear no evil. These are the shadow lands. Here's what David realizes in verse 6. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. This would be man plural. In turmoil, and man heaps up wealth and doesn't know who will gather. Our suffering and our toil, our afflictions and our pursuits in an earthly sense cannot deliver us. One of the things Ecclesiastes is concerned about is all the striving that goes on under the sun and what that gains you under the sun. 
Any gain it brings you under the sun is temporary because of death. Death is that equalizer across the board where we look at a graveyard and we realize there in the graves are the wise and the fools, the rich and the poor, young and the old. The the grave is an equalizer. And he says here, surely for nothing they're in turmoil. Because despite all the suffering that they experience in an earthly sense, the gain that they receive in any sort of wisdom, any sort of income, any sort of legacy, man heaps up wealth and doesn't know who will gather. How can he say verse 6? Because of death. Since death is coming, he recognizes an earthly vanity in it. Man heaps up wealth and doesn't know who will gather. How will that man not know? Because when he gathers his wealth, what's eventually going to happen to him? He's going to die. Doesn't it remind you of the parable in Luke chapter 12 where there was this man of such vast crops and harvest and wealth that he said, what I'm going to do with everything I've got? Oh, I've got all these barns, but they're too full already. What I'm going to need for all of my wealth I've acquired, I'm going to need bigger barns. Now that might seem like good earthly stewardship. There might be those around the world who would look at that and say, well, good on that guy. Look at all that he's acquired and look at what his plan is next. That's amazing. And then God says, the Lord Jesus in the parable, the Lord says, you fool. You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. You see, this man in verse 6 heaps up wealth and then what? Well, he's going to die. What's going to happen to his wealth afterward? He doesn't know and he can't control it. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. What verses 4 to 6 are doing after David's tried to describe the difficulty of staying silent. He says, all right, God, I've got to say something. I've got to say, I've got words, I've got to, and I'm going to pray. And when I pray, oh God, I need you to give me an understanding of how fleeting my life is. That's an amazing thing for a king to pray. Ruling over a kingdom. People submitting to his authority and decrees throughout the land. An army of might, beautiful facilities, and his future sanctuary his son Solomon is going to build called the temple. Oh, the reign of David and the victories in the land. David says, Lord, that's not going to keep me here away from death either. I'm going to die. And in light of that, God, help me to understand how fleeting my life is. In verses 7 to 13, it all leads to this. Verses 7 to 13 are his resolve and his request. His resolve and his request. And now, O Lord, that's a transition point. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? Earthly gain isn't going to satisfy him. Earthly pleasures and renown and rule are not going to keep him from death. For what do I wait? My hope is is in you. This is David's resolve. This needs to be our resolve. Here it is. That we would ask God with humility and openness, Lord, help me to be aware. Keep me humble in light of how fleeting my life is. So what shall I do in the meantime? I will hope in you. Not the things of this world that glitter like gold and that allure and tempt and that seek to say, live for these things. Those things don't last. You, O Lord, for you, in you I hope. He says in verse 8, deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. In verse 8, David knows what he most needs. Do you realize what you most need? 
Now, if we were to write out a list of various needs we have, we might think of physical needs. And that would be natural and understandable. We think, I would need food, and I would need water, and I would need shelter. We talk about basics of life. When he says here, deliver me from all my transgressions, David is looking beyond what is a physical need. Because what good is it if you dine like kings and perish in your sins? What good is it if you die in the biggest house in the world and live eternally without God? What does David know he needs? David needs deliverance from his sins. He knows that the greatest problem he has is a spiritual problem. Now, he's got enemies who look for his demise. But the enemies are not a greater threat to David than David's own sin is a threat to David. What David needs is deliverance from the judgment of God. My hope is in you, David says. And friends, that's the key to having deliverance from God, from the judgment we deserve. Hoping in God, looking to God with the eyes of faith. Deliver me, David prays. That goes together in verses 7 and 8. Hoping in God is looking to God for deliverance. The reason we know David hopes in God is because of the prayer in verse 8 for deliverance from God. Deliver me, he says, from all my transgressions. David doesn't need help for part of his spiritual condition. He needs God to do such a work of reconciliation and atonement that it would be only to God be the glory for such salvation and none to David. All of David's transgressions he needs deliverance from. And he prays that God would not make him the scorn of a fool. The fool would look with mockery. Mockery on people looking to God and trusting in God. They think it's ridiculous. That's why the blessed man in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk according to the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. There are plenty of people who will scorn your hope in God. They will mock that you love the Bible. They will mock that you go to church. They will think it is absolutely absurd that your hope is in the Redeemer who is Jesus. So David prays, Lord, in my circumstances, let it be that the fool will not prevail over me with scorn and mockery. Don't make me the object of the fool's scorn. Don't let it be that in my case, when I am burdened by my sins and surrounded by enemies outwardly, don't let it be that the fool thinks that wickedness has prevailed and that the righteous is brought down. I think he's praying again for deliverance. Deliver me from all my transgressions and do not make me the scorn of the fool. I think this is David saying, Lord, inwardly I need you to work. Outwardly I need you to work. So that you receive glory and the wicked are confounded by your strong and mighty hand. So he says in verse 9 again, I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. You say, how can he say verse 9 when we have eight verses of him opening his mouth and not being mute? It's a good question. What I think he means again is being silent before the wicked, muzzled, if you will, so that he may not say a word of sin against them to make sure that his example and his testimony before God is above reproach in light of the wicked being around him. So he's again saying, I'm mute, I'm not opening my mouth. And it reminds us of the Lord Jesus who experienced the reproach of sinners, who mocked him and who scorned him, and at his trials falsely accused him and blasphemed him. And it tells us the Lord Jesus remained silent. 
And it really provoked the people that were there in the court area, in the high priest's house. It was so frustrating to them. They wanted him to say something. They wanted him to admit that he wasn't who he said he was. But of course, Christ's words are true. And his claims were genuine and right. And so he stood like a lamb before its shearers is silent, foreshadowed here by David. People ready to undo him if they could take the moment and opportunity. So he says, I'm not, I am mute and I do not open my mouth. And then he says, for it is you who have done it. David is saying something strong here at the end of verse 9. God is not uninvolved in the circumstances of David's life. God is sovereign over David's steps and path. In other words, God is not surprised by what David is experiencing. God is to be trusted through what David is experiencing because God is sovereign over everything David is going through. So David recognizes in the big scheme of things how small and fleeting his own life is and how exalted and mighty and sovereign God is. It is you who have done it. He says in verse 10, remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. David is so exhausted from his suffering. He's so tired. Because when personal suffering feels unrelenting, there is a kind of exhaustion where we plead to God for relief. And this is David pleading for relief. The, the stroke from God is like the discipline of God or the chastisement of a father seeking to guide his son. We're told in Proverbs and in Hebrews that God disciplines those that he loves. What I think we can recognize in Psalm 39 from words like this David does not believe he's suffering as an innocent person. David knows that he is guilty before God. He's praying for deliverance from transgressions because he knows this isn't just like Job's situation where this is the suffering of the righteous one. But this is a suffering of one who is experiencing the discipline of God for wrongdoing. And he's pleading that the chastisement of God would end. I don't think he's saying, Lord, don't love me anymore because God disciplines those he loves. I think he's saying, oh, Lord, I'm turning to you and you have not given me over to my sin. You have loved me and you have awakened me through the pain of the consequences of my sin, of my need for you. And my hope is in you. So, Lord, you have helped me once again to see the truth. You've helped me to see your worth, your sovereignty, your power, my sin, my need for you. So, Lord, I see Please now bring your discipline to an end. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. I don't think he's saying God has been unjust. There is no injustice with God. I don't think he's saying God was in some way wrong. I think he's saying, Lord, you are sovereign and your hand toward me has not felt comfortable and peaceful. It has felt difficult and chastising. There has been a hostility because of my sin. Lord, I'm so spent by this now. In verse 11, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what's dear to him. When you leave hanging garments unattended, moths will seek to attend to them. Things that can be uh, damaged over time by moths. Things that were dear to you. I think he's comparing here David's 
perhaps concealment of or treasuring of wrongdoing. He had put his arms around things that were wrong and saying, I'm going to live this way. This is what I'm going to do. But like a moth, eating away at what is dear to a person, the discipline of God and the rebukes for sin have helped David see afresh that sin is no friend of ours. Our transgression has never done us any good. Our wickedness and our unrighteousness do not improve our lives. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. David has seen afresh, as we need to see afresh, the greatness of God and His mercy, the realness and horror of sin and transgression, and the frailty of life. Life is so fragile. So should we walk in rebellion against the living God? May it never be. We are so vulnerable. We are not invincible. We live in mortal bodies that are weak and wearied, that grow sick and shall die. So what are we going to do? David says, here's what I'm going to do. My hope is in you. My hope is in you, God. Deliver me in every way. May I not be the scorn of a fool. Instead, O oh God, you attend to me. I need you, O oh God. He says in verse 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. David is broken before God. He's weeping before God. He's distraught. He is spiritually seeking the Lord. His sin did not drive him away from God. His sin has driven him to God. What he's experienced as a discipline of the Lord, he's saying, you've seen my tears. So don't hold your peace. Give it. I need your peace. So to hold peace would be to keep David in distress. This is why David says, hold not your peace at my tears. Lord, respond to my contrite heart. You know my heart, O oh God. You know my sorrow, my godly sorrow and repentance over my sin. Lord, you see my heart. So now give me peace. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Talk about temporal earthly life. Here it is at the end of verse 12. A sojourner or a guest like all my fathers. He's talking about the former Israelite ancestors. We're thinking all the way Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and before and after. We're thinking about how these patriarchs set an example that in Hebrews chapter 11 helped us see them as exiles in this life. They were born and were never meant to stay apart from death. They were meant to die and be raised from the dead in glory and inhabit a new heavens and new earth with all the people of God. Listen to Hebrews 11. Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 11 tells us in verse 13 that he, he Abraham and the others, they died in faith not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. What did Abraham and the others know about themselves? Hebrews 11 tells us. They acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We are suffering exiles. We are strangers, if you will, in a fallen world, experiencing affliction, heading into a new heavens and new earth. But the world as it is, is not our home. And I emphasize that phrase as it is. We await the glorious restoration and transformation of all things. 
We look to the coming of the Lord whose kingdom shall never end. We recite this in the Nicene Creed, don't we? We long for the return of Christ. But as it is, the world is not our home. David says, I'm a sojourner. I'm just a guest like all my fathers. David wants a perspective of life that in his praying and in his living helps him realize, I am not meant to belong to this world the way it is. I may feel actually like a stranger in this world. Looking to Christ who has the everlasting kingdom in a world that prizes the darkness of sin and the corrupted deeds of the flesh, we may feel like exiles, like we don't belong to this present age. And the reason we would feel that way is we don't belong to this present age. We belong to the age to come. We are citizens of heaven. And from it we await a Savior from there who will raise us and make our bodies like His own, raising us from death. So if you look around in this world full of distress and warfare, full of angst and tension, full of anger and rage, and you think, I just have a keener sense every day that I don't belong, then praise God, friend, you believe the Bible. We don't belong in the world as it is. We await a mighty Savior from heaven. We're told in verse 13, David's last line, look away from me that I may smile again. What's he talking about there? Look away from me. You know, the gaze or look of the Lord can mean one of two things. I've argued in our time when we were in Luke's gospel many months ago, that when, the, when Peter denied Christ, and in Luke 22, Jesus looked at Peter, that it was a look that melted Peter in the moment with contrition because of the mercy and love in the eyes of Christ. I think here, David is talking about a look of discipline. The look that calls David to a reckoning for his sins. Where there are consequences, a reaping for what is sown. That look of, dis of uh, discipline and chastisement, David says, look away. He wants the mercy of God. And that means the disciplining, chastising hand of God, he needs removed. So he's praying, look away from me, that I may smile again. David is so wearied from his suffering that his very expression and countenance, he longs for it to be lifted up. And what he longs for is the renewed experience of peace with God, not what he has been going through. He knows that he has sinned. He knows he's experienced the discipline of the Lord. He's reminded of how fleeting his life is and how awful sin is. And he has a renewed sense of how great and merciful God is. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. The end of verse 13 is about earthly death. David doesn't know the day of his death. I would be willing to say that not only are all of us going to die, we're going to die sooner than we think. Consider, friends, the unknown that is before us. The lack of details that we have about the way our future is going to unfold. So here's what David knows. I don't want to live my life rebelling against God and the iniquities of my sins and under his discipline and chastisement. What do I want for my days? I want to walk in the sweet fellowship with God and his peace and joy in Christ Jesus, looking to him as my mighty refuge, because if death is coming, I'm going to follow Christ all the way. Amen. 
David's prayer here is, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. So David's desire is, Lord, though death may come, I'm walking with you all the way. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Leads me and guides me. Green pasture, still waters, restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even through the valley of the shadow of death, David knows I'm with God and God is with me. And so my enemies are here, but God does the unthinkable. and He just prepares a table right in front of them. And I'm just feasting on the goodness of God, the fellowship with God, the peace of God. Though I may die, I die in Christ. And that makes all the difference. Let's pray.